Turn to John chapter 6 this morning. That's where we're going to be together. As you do that, I'll tell you a little story. Uh, Noel and I, uh, I was up doing a wedding in Sonoma a couple months ago. And uh, when, when I do a wedding close by, Noel and I sometimes try to make that like uh, a night away, like get away for a weekend. So we'll go to the rehearsal Friday, stay at a place, and then go do the wedding on Saturday. So a few months ago, we went and did this wedding up in Sonoma. We get an Airbnb. Okay, I love, hate Airbnb. All right, because uh, we, we get the place and it looks awesome when we sign up for it and we register for it and everything looks great. And we get there and somehow, I'm not saying it's Airbnb's fault. If you work for them, please don't come up to me afterwards. Um, somehow, we didn't get like a private place. We got a room in a lady's house with a shared bathroom. And this is like my worst nightmare. This is... Because here's, you got to know this, like I'm very introverted, all right. I, I love the church. I, I love talking to you guys. But I just don't like people very much. Like in my life, I just don't like people. I like being alone. Like if I could have a book and a fire or be at a party with 50 people, book and fire all day long, okay. Um, so we, we find out like it's this room at this lady's house. She's not there when we check in. And so I'm like, oh, okay, good. Let's get out of here. And then, you know, we went out to dinner and stuff. Didn't meet this lady until the next day. We went for a walk in the morning. We're getting ready for the wedding. We come back and, and she's there. Sweet uh, old lady. Lives by herself there with like many cats. Another like, please post that before I pay for this room. But um, so we go to this lady's house and, uh, and she's making chit chat and making coffee in the morning. And she's like, oh, where do you live? Oh, we live in the city. Oh, I love the city. Uh, what do you do? So I'm a minister. What? You're a minister? Like what kind of minister? Well, I, you know, I'm a pastor at a non-denominational Christian church in San Francisco. She's like, sit down, please. I have so many questions for you. <laughs> and I'm like, I wish I could say, I was like, praise the Lord, divine like moment. I'm like, crap. <laughs> I just want to go to this wedding. But Noelle is like way more holy than I am. She's like, yes, please, we want to hear your story. So we sit down, lady makes a pot of coffee. We're, we'll call her Sally. Okay, Sally makes a pot of coffee. And we sit down and she's like, okay, what's the deal with Jesus? <laughs> no problem, Kathy. All right, uh, well, no problem, Sally. <laughs> If you're here, Kathy, I tried. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> listen here, Kathy. Let me tell you all about Jesus. So we sit down. Hour and a half. We're talking. She's got all these questions about, about Jesus. How is Jesus the way? How is he the thing? Like I, I'm more into Buddhism and like there's just many ways and there, there's this openness. Why is Jesus so narrow? Why, what, what's going on there? Who is, how can he be God? Like he walked around like the rest of All these questions, foundational, fundamental questions. Hour and a half, we sit with Kathy at her table and at the end of it, Noel and I get to pray with Kathy in her kitchen to know Jesus and experience him in the Holy Spirit. And it was just like this incredible thing. Praise God. That's awesome. Yeah, praise God. So what this stirred up in me is like there are so many questions that Kathy was asking that I asked. Like on a regular basis. And I think 
no matter how long you've been walking with the Lord, no matter what your story is, if, if you've been in the church your entire life or someone dragged you here this morning, um, on that spectrum, I'm guessing you have asked questions, who is God? Who is this Jesus? What is, how do I know uh, what he's about? And that is what we are going to spend time this summer actually digging into. These really big, foundational, important questions that all of us struggle with, no matter how long we've been at this together. We have these abstract concepts of God, and then we fill in the gaps. And here's what I want to tell you this morning. You should not be frustrated with that. I want to just take any guilt or shame or pressure that like I sh- I've been at this long as I should know more. I should feel better about this. What we are talking about, what, what is incredible about God is he is so unknowable. <laughs> Can we like just accept that together? Like there are, there's so much of God that is unknowable and should be unknowable to us. Isaiah says that his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Like he is something completely outside of us. And that's good. Thank God for that. Right? So when we walk into this and we start to to talk about who God is and what he is like and what he's about, our words from the very get-go will fall short. They're so limiting to describe who God is, who Jesus is. They're limiting. This is where faith comes in, right? Hebrews says that faith is this confidence... In things we hope for. This confidence in what is hoped for and unseen. Right? So there's two Greek words I want to teach you this morning. Uh, And they have to do with God's knowableness and unknowableness. These are historical theologies in the church. One of which we're super familiar with. The other you probably have no clue about, haven't heard of at all. And I want to start with that one. Uh, It's called apophatic theology. Apophatic. It comes from the Greek word apophemi, which means to deny. Okay, before you freak out, listen. Um, It's also known as the negative theology. Here's what what, what it means. It's not saying that God is bad. It's not talking about God as negative, as as evil or anything. Um, But what it's saying, as we translate those words, the word apophemi, It means because God is divine, other, higher, we can only describe him as what he is not. We don't have words for what he is, but we can describe him as what he's not. So we could say God is not evil. God is not a creation. God is not limited, not by space or location or time. He's wholly other than us. Okay, that's apophatic. Theology, God is unknowable. The other one, which you're more familiar with, is called cataphatic theology. From the Greek words kata, which means to descend, and femi, to speak. And it's roughly translated this. To bring God down in such a way so as to be able to speak of him. So we take this lofty concept of the unknowable and we we bring it down, dumb it down, to something we can understand. So scripture uses examples like God is is like a rock, a firm foundation. God is like the wind. He goes wherever he pleases. God is like a lamb, gentle and pure. We sang songs, God is the father, God is the king. 
right? These are all ways of taking the apophatic, right, the, this, this unknowableness and trying to make him knowable. That will bring him down, right? So where we want to start today is accepting that God is both beyond what we can fully understand. There are no words. He is too great. And at the same time, he makes himself known. He makes himself known to us in the ways he deems appropriate. He tells us how we should know him. Are you following? Are you guys with me? Okay. All right. You guys are halfway to Fillmore Jazz Festival. Okay. Hang with me. All right. So what am I talking about? Today, this summer, in this series, we're, we're opening up a new series this summer. Um, we're, we're talking about distinct ways that Christ explains himself to us in ways that we can understand. All right. Now this happens two distinct ways. The first is, uh, as we believe in Holy Scripture, that God says he becomes like us. To become knowable, the unknowable to become knowable, he becomes like us in the person of Jesus Christ. To make himself knowable. So the eternal steps into the constraints and limits of time. Because we cannot understand eternal. But we can understand the constraints of time. The limits, right? The, the all-living, never-ending eternalness of God steps into, in Christ, the limits of decay and death. We get that. We don't understand the eternal go on forever. Okay, so he steps in in ways that we can know him. Purposefully, he becomes the person of Christ. And this is Jesus' claim, by the way. He says, if you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. If you hear the words I say, you're hearing them because the Father gave them to me to give to you. And Hebrews 1 tells us the Son, Christ, is the radiance of God's glory. And, listen to this, the exact representation of his being. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. So Christ is this knowableness of God. God loves us that much that he enters in becomes knowable in the person of Christ. So that's the one distinct way. What we're going to spend time this, this summer looking at are these distinct ways that Christ then unpacks the knowableness of who he is. When Christ speaks, he speaks primarily in two ways. He teaches primarily in two ways. Parables and metaphors. Parables and metaphors. Now parable is simply a story. Gosh, I love that Jesus is a storyteller. He walks us through situations in life that we can put ourselves into the story and begin to learn the character of who God is. Right? So in Luke chapter 15, my favorite parable section, we get the heart of God for the lost. And he tells the story of a lost sheep and how the shepherd goes and finds the one and celebrates. He tells the story of a woman who loses a valuable coin and she searches her house and rejoices when she finds it. And then, like the climax is the lost son. The son who rejects the father goes and then comes back and the father restores him. We get, all, we get to understand the unknowableness of who God is in these stories, parables. The second way that Christ explains his unknowable godness to us is through metaphor. 
Metaphors. You know what metaphors are. Metaphors are super fun. We use them all the time. Anytime we want to communicate an abstract idea or concept to one another, we begin to compare it or contrast it with something familiar to us, right? Metaphors have a very simple formula. X equals Y, okay? Simple formula metaphor. Let's look at a couple. You know these. Shakespeare loved metaphor. He's trying to tell us how Romeo just adores Juliet. His, his feelings for her, his experience with her. And so he says, Juliet is the sun. Juliet is the sun. And you get this feeling of Juliet is the center of Romeo's existence. Juliet just draws him in powerfully. He can't resist. Juliet has this warmth, this glow that shines. Like you can just, okay, I know the sun. And so I can understand how Romeo connects to Juliet, right? You guys tracking? Weathermen, they use this all, all the time. Okay, we, we live in California. We don't get hail very often. But if you hear a weatherman say on the news, it hailed like golf balls. Even if you've never experienced hail, you could say, okay, it's about that big. Uh, it's hard. And, uh, okay, I can get an idea. And you would have a pretty good idea of uh, what it looks like. It makes dents in my car, right? Like when I golf. I make dents in people's cars. So we can identify, we get the, we get the metaphor, okay? Um, San Francisco has been called the jewel of the West. The jewel of the West. What does that mean? It means it's beautiful, it's attractive, uh, it's very expensive. <laughs> right? Okay, and then, and then some metaphors are very uh, uh, culturally Loaded, culturally connected. So if I say to you, um, X is the Super Bowl of whatever, you as an American, you know, okay, Super Bowl is a big deal. It's like basically a national holiday. Okay, so I get it. This, this is a big, so Fashion Week is the Super Bowl of fashion. Okay, I don't know anything about Fashion Week, so maybe that metaphor doesn't work. But, but you know what the Super Bowl is. You can say, oh, okay, I get, I get that thing. All right, okay. I'm killing this, this example. Um, the point. Jesus always meets us where we're at. Jesus meets us where we're at. So he doesn't pull you up into this abstract uh, unknowableness. He comes down and begins to get like nitty gritty and dirty and like let me show you who I am with his metaphors. So when people try to ex explain to you, tell you, who Jesus is in, in their words, right? Jesus is a great teacher. Jesus is a, is a profound philosopher. Jesus is a pioneer of social justice. Okay, those are all true things. Okay, but here's the thing. If you are going to be a Christ follower with your life, then you and I, we must lis listen to how Christ defines himself. That has to be the, the way we see Christ. Let him define who he is. Let him explain who he is to us. And that's what we're going to do together. So this summer we we're looking at these I am statements that Christ makes. He's going to tell us I am this, that. And he uses these incredible metaphors. I am. For the next several weeks this summer we're going to look at when Jesus says I am the way. When he says, I am the good shepherd, 
I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. And today we are going to look together when Jesus says, I am the bread of life. That's our scripture passage today. That is a way long intro. Turn to John chapter 6. Hopefully you're there already. All right. Here's what it says. Verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do? What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe in you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never go thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. At this the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling amongst yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. 
Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in a synagogue in Capernaum. Let's pray. Lord God, it is easy to get freaked out by these kinds of words. And God, far be it from me to try to explain to my brothers and sisters who you are. And so I ask, God, a gift of your Holy Spirit to be on us together this morning. That you would open hearts, God, and ears. That you would reveal in your words, Lord, who you are to those who need to hear this, God. God, I pray for a grace on us to be gentle with one another. Pray, God, for an open-heartedness, Lord, to believe even in a mustard seed size of faith, to believe, Lord, that you are greater than us. Now we have to put our faith in something bigger than us. As you walk us through what that looks like, God. We love you and bless your name. Amen. So in San Francisco, bread is basically a religion in and of itself. We know and we love our bread. If you go to a certain bakery, and I won't even name the bakery because there are like street gangs of bakery followers uh, who just take out other people liking other bakeries. Uh, There is a certain bakery near our office uh, that you can be there at Tuesday, 9 a.m. in the morning. And you will wait around the building in a line to get a morning bun uh, for breakfast. 9 a.m. on Tuesday. Guaranteed. And here is how, like, like passionate people are about bread here. There are people in this crowd who are offended that I called a morning bun bread. Like, that's a pastry. Pastries aren't bread. Get a life. I love you, but get a life, okay? We, we love bread in the city. It's a really big deal. And listen, our culture abroad outside the city loves bread. We have a, a historical narrative of bread, right? We call the person who makes money in the family the breadwinner, right? Okay. If something cool happens, we're like, that's the coolest thing since sliced bread. Okay, you guys know, all right? So this is a cultural narrative, right? We get this. Bread is a big deal. We can identify with that. So did the people of Israel. They actually had a much more powerfully uh, connected historical narrative to bread than, than we even do. So in John 6, Jesus is using something familiar to them. Right? Something they would immediately understand and be connected to uh, with his audience. To help them understand who he is. I am the bread. Okay, we know bread. Wait, we actually know the story of bread. So to get the context of what's happening in this dialogue, let's pull back for a second to John chapter 5. What's just happened? Jesus has been preaching to 5,000 people. Well, 5,000 men, which means there's even more, you know, women, children, whoever else was there. Thousands of people. Jesus is preaching. And it gets long into the day and people are, are hungry. They're just gathered there listening. They don't want to leave. They're hungry. Jesus doesn't send them away. 
Instead, he takes a barley loaf of bread from a little kid. Well, I don't know if he took it from the kid. Like, like bully, you know, give me your lunch money. But takes this loaf of bread and he, he, he holds it up and he gives thanks to God in heaven. And he begins to break the bread and he feeds everyone, right? So he doesn't take the bread and like little like barley dust to like 5,000 people. It says everyone ate to their fill. They ate as much as they could eat. And then there were baskets of bread left over. Now to you and I, we're saying, well, that's, that's cool. That's a cool story. I wonder how he did that. To the people who were listening, who were following, who were putting hope in Jesus, this would have been like, I know this. I've heard of this before, right? They would connect it to this narrative of their people. Any good Hebrew boy or, or girl would have connected what was happening to the foundational story of their people. These people would have immediately thought of, of the Torah, of the first five books of the Bible, the foundational narrative of the Jewish people. And we watch them kind of figure this out in the dialogue with, with Jesus, right? They're putting this together. So I'm going to paraphrase here. At the beginning of portion of scripture we read, they say, well, Jesus, how did you get here? They're, they're on the other side of the lake now from where he had been teaching yesterday. When did you get here, Jesus? And he says, cut the crap. I know what you want. You want free bread. Let's just be honest. You want free bread. And then they get, you know, very, very religious. You know, like, oh, well, what is the work that I must do to win God's favor? You know, to do right in the eyes of the Lord. What, what do I have to do? And Jesus says something profound. This is the work. Believe in me. This is the thing God is asking of you. Not prayer, not study, not service. This is the work. Believe in me. Now this probably isn't what they were expecting. And so they say, well, hold on a second. You're asking us to believe in you. What is the sign that you'll give us? Uh, let me make a suggestion. Free bread. Because our people believed in a redeemer in the historical narrative of our people, and he, he called down bread from heaven. So maybe you should do that, and then we can believe. And Jesus begins to correct their theology a little bit. He says, not Moses. Moses is not the one who, who provided this for you. This is my father provided this bread that came down from heaven. He gives it, and it feeds the whole world. And they're like, yes, let's do that forever. Yes. And then Jesus blows their mind again. Okay, I am the bread. What? what? Jesus, what are you talking about? This makes no sense. What does Jesus mean, I am the bread of life? What, what is Jesus trying to communicate to these people? It's important we know his message for them, how they would have understood it, before we try to apply it to us. Right? What is this connection Jesus is making between manna and Moses and the bread of life himself? What is it? To understand this and move forward, we have to start by going backwards. So turn with me to Exodus chapter 16. Second book of the Bible, chapter 16. 
And this is the narrative that people would have connected to, okay? Just listen. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin. Interesting. Which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after they had gone out of Egypt. The people of of Israel had been slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years. They've been delivered. They're out on this new adventure. And things are going so well. Just listen. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat round pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. They sound happy, thankful. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they are willing to follow my instruction. On the sixth day, they, ate to, uh, they are to prepare what they bring in. And that is to be twice as much as they gathered on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning you will see... The glory of the Lord. We just highlight that or underline it. Verse 7. And in the morning, you will see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that we should grumble against? Against us. Moses also said, you will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning. Because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Jump down to verse 14. When the dew in the morning was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is this? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. Okay, we'll stop there. And this goes on. And God provides this bread for as long as the Israelite people are traveling through the desert. Forty years. He provides this manna in the morning. And it says that some people, when it first comes out, they hoard it. And they bring it back. They take more than they need. They take it back to their camp and they store it. And what happens? It begins to like decay and there are maggots in it. Except for the night before Sabbath when they're to take twice as much so they can rest. That bread lasts. Okay. So this is the story. This is what the people are connecting. Like Jesus is the bread of life. With manna, this is what all these things mean. It's this connection That they had with God as the Israelite people through Moses, this flaky honey bread. I think like frosted flakes. This is what I think of. Frosted flakes was a gift of love from God to his people. (laughs) And it comes through Moses, their advocate. Moses was the people's uh, voice to God and God's voice to the people. He talked to God, gave them instruction. Spoke to God on their behalf. 
Theologian John Bengel, uh, Johann Bengel, excuse me, uh, said this in a commentary. He said, the Jewish people viewed Moses as so peculiarly a type of Messiah that they themselves said, as was the first redeemer, Moses, such shall be the last redeemer, the Messiah to come. And again they said, the first redeemer caused manna to come down for them. And so shall the last redeemer cause manna to come down. The questioners here in our passage, they seem to want Jesus to feel inferior to Moses. We know who Moses is. He's the redeemer of our people. He brought us, led us out of Israel. He called down bread from heaven, sustained us. And Jesus said, not Moses. You got that wrong. Jesus begins to tweak this narrative for them. Jesus says, that bread that you heard your ancestors talk about, that manna, that bread was to keep them alive in the desert, the desert of sin, right? I am that bread. I am the gift from heaven. I am the provision that is given to you freely. I am the way to give you life in the desert. You can't hoard me. You can't manipulate me. You must trust that I will be there for you each day. Jesus is the true and better manna from heaven. And Jesus says, you know Moses, who you thought was your redeemer out of an old dead life in slavery. You remember him. Well, I am that redeemer, that rescuer that you've been waiting for. I will lead you. Free you out of an old life of slavery. I will walk with you through the desert of this life, providing everything you need. I will lead you to the real promised land, the very kingdom of God. Jesus is the true and better Moses that Moses pointed to. Jesus is making himself known to his people in a way they can understand and connect to. But it is so hard for them to see Jesus because he doesn't fit. He does not fit the paradigm of the Messiah they were waiting for. He is outside of that box. And when, listen, when I sit with people in my office and they say, I don't get it. <laughs> Why does Jesus have to be the, the way? Why does it have to be like this? They're doing the same thing and I do the same thing. I've constructed a, a God puzzle and Jesus doesn't fit in there. So it can't add up. My construct is not the construct that Jesus is giving me. I've made a different one. And these followers... They don't get it either. These people who have chased Jesus down. Isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph? Like, I know your mom and dad. Why are you telling me you come down from heaven? It doesn't fit. And to make it even more confusing, God bless Jesus. God bless, Jesus bless Jesus. Jesus takes this metaphor to the next level. Oh yeah, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. In case you weren't confused already. Whoa, Jesus, simmer down. Like, what are you talking about? Hold on. 
What does this mean that we would eat Jesus? This freaks these people out, and it can freak us out too. But let's talk about bread for a minute. We've lost our romance with bread. Now we got, we got bread, and people are, they care about bread in their bakery. But I'm talking about like the nitty-gritty, dirty, do-it-yourself bread. We've lost the romance of that. We've become this consumer market with bread. Where literally, whether you're in San Francisco or not, anywhere you go, you will have hundreds of options of bread today. You can have whole wheat. You can have multigrain. You can have buttermilk. You can have potato bread. You can have cinnamon raisin. You can have gluten-free. And on and on and on. You can get whatever you want and it's all good bread. And there's this saying that goes, when the taker, I better look at my quote before I say it. When the consumer becomes a taker, he forgets what it is he's taking. It's just the excitement of taking. And so you want bread today, you'll go find bread somewhere. You lost, we've lost a romance with it. And so I decided to bake some bread. I don't bake. I don't do much of anything in the kitchen, actually, except eat. I decided to make some bread. And listen, uh, making bread is like this, this gritty product. You get the flour and you get like the butter and the salt. And then you get the yeast, which is like this living thing. And, and you mix it all together, and, and it's fun. You get your hands in it. And then, like, it's a delicate thing. you got to let it sit, right? Let it rise. But you can't let it go too long, and you can't let it go too short. And then you, you form the dough, and, and then you put it in the oven. It's got to go not too long, not too short, at the right temp, not too hot, not too cold, the right temp. It's a delicate thing. But, man, when you walk into a house, come on, just close your eyes for a minute. I'm being serious. Close your eyes for a minute. Like you walk into a house and you get that wave of bread, fresh bread out of the oven. I mean, that's like sexy. That's like, that's like, that's like, that's like some carnal thing in us is like, yes. And then, oh man, you cut the bread and there's like the steam coming off it and a little bit of butter on that and like you eat like this is like an intimate like romantic are you weirded out by me and bread like this is like a real deal like this is a this is cool right we we forget about all of that stuff with bread go bake some bread this week okay like fall in love with it again because bread is like is this living thing right it's formed it actually has like living parts of it that, that, that are nutrients and, and there's life in there. So think about like when we take bread, when we eat it, right, it, it is literally, it's, it's this living thing that becomes a part of us. We begin to digest it and it, it breaks down and like the elements of the bread move into us. Literally the, the bread is dying it's imparting life to us. It gives us fuel for a short time to keep going. And bread's like a really important thing. So important that there's a theologian, Norman Wurzba, who wrote a book, I'm not joking, called Food and Faith, A Theology of Eating. If you live in San Francisco 
and you're a Christian, you have to read this book. It's required reading for living here. Okay, here's what he says about this process. The eating self, you and I, the eating self retains its form and distinction by destroying the identity of what it's eating. Eating, in other words, absorbs the other into itself, into me. Though another material temporarily persists in my material, its form, that which makes it distinct and different from me, no longer exists. The absorption of another's form into my being introduces us to one of the great paradoxes of eating. To preserve the form of life, the form of another's life must end. Eating is at once form-preserving and form-deforming. What was distinct and whole gets broken down and homogenized in order to preserve the distinctness and wholeness of the feeder. Viewed physiologically, we do not really abide with our food because we eat it. In eating it, we also destroy it. You feel sorry for your food yet? Now you should. Kind of depressing. Okay, but this is what Worst Buzz uh, is doing. He's challenging our thoughts on food. Because if we stop operating from this consumer, like just give me the thing I want and let's move on. I'll eat it and I'll keep going and da 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 We begin to slow down and stop and think about this, it forces us to value things differently. You start thinking about your bread and, and where it's made, how it's made, who made it, what was their life like, the ones who prepared that for me. You begin to slow down. You begin to think and care a little bit more. And more easily we're able to see what Jesus is talking about in this metaphor, the bread of life, the Jewish people who followed Christ to Capernaum that day had one thing in mind, free access to bread. They're operating on a consumer mentality. And this can describe us. Jesus knows that the people don't want him for who he is, but rather what he has to offer. Can you relate to this? I can't. Jesus, give me peace. I'm super stressed out. Jesus, help me pass this exam, please. Jesus, make her love me. In all of these ways and so many more, we use Jesus. We're using him. And the problem with using Jesus is that when he ceases to be useful to you, you have no place for him. So will you take a sober look at how you experience Jesus? Are you consuming Christ or are you abiding in Christ? Huge difference. Jesus isn't interested in that consumer relationship with you or with me. For Jesus, this metaphor is this picture of abiding. This is what he says. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I in them. The bread metaphor takes on a whole new meaning here. 
So when we eat of the bread and it's broken down physically in us and absorbed in our bodies, it temporarily sustains us, gives us life. But Jesus reminds the followers that day, even the Israelites who ate that, that manna from heaven, that miracle bread, where are those people? They're all dead. This is not the bread that gives you life, eternal. They eventually died. Jesus isn't offering access to bread to fill your belly eternally. He's offering that we eat this supernatural bread of himself. He's describing a meal that inspires, that empowers, that transforms, heals, and nourishes our soul. Wordsbah, again, he, he comes back to this. He says, this kind of eating, eating Christ, is a kind of eating without the other being completely destroyed. The other, that is Jesus, continues to live on in me, not as a deformed matter, but as food that informs and reforms life from the inside. This is eating found, founded on mutual abiding. So Jesus is speaking of relationship. He's describing this intimate meal. Throughout the Gospels, okay, and we're winding down here, I promise. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus is found eating these intimate meals with people. He, he's eating with, with priests and politicians, but he's eating with prostitutes and rejects and sinners. Anyone Jesus wanted to connect with, he would have this intimate meal. These profound stories, read through the Gospels. Jesus doesn't just walk by people. He sits with them. And he breaks bread with them. And he reforms them and he heals and delivers them. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I in them. This is a meal we still participate in today. This is a meal that we, the church, call Eucharist or communion. We celebrate it each Sunday together. Of course, this would have been super confusing for the people in John chapter 6. They had no clue of what was to come in the months ahead. But Jesus brought this all together on the night as he was preparing to go to the cross. He was sharing a, an intimate meal in a private room with his dearest friends. Those he had been sharing his life with in ministry for years. He knew what was coming. They had no clue. At this meal, Jesus does the strangest thing. He takes bread from the table and he breaks this bread apart, saying, This bread is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he takes a cup of wine. On the table and he says, this is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out for you. At that temple, that day in Capernaum, 
with these people asking so many questions. Jesus is foretelling of this new way of being connected to God. He's sharing this knowable part of who God is that up to this point was completely unknowable on a relationship level. Jesus is the bread of life that when we consume abides with us, does not dissolve and go away and transforms and brings new life eternally. This is an ongoing dependency on Christ for our new life. As we abide in Christ and Christ in us, we step into this eternal relationship. One that never spoils or decays or dies. Christ is the only way to this. Salvation comes through Christ alone. When we accept that free gift that he supplies, as we remember what he's done when we gather, then we allow him to abide in us. He becomes our source of hope, direction, and fulfillment. Let's pray.